0: Now yeah, I'll say this. Tonight might be actually the first true survey class we have, right? Because you have there in your notes Joshua and Judges, and you talk about a, a surface level of some books that I really want to preach through. Um, these are those particular books, and here's what I'm going to do. Because we really are doing a surface level tonight, and, and that means I'm not going to have us all get our marching shoes on and march around the building of Grey Gables and blow a trumpet and see what happens. Um, we really are doing a survey tonight. Here's what I want you to do. And we thought we talked about this. Um, we're on track. This is week nine, eight. eight. This is week eight. Next week we have Ruth and First and Second Samuel. Is that right? Yes. Next week we're going to cover Ruth and First, which really should be easy because what we don't cover in Second Samuel we'll cover on Sunday morning, right? Um, but that'll be week nine. We want to give some buffer weeks, and what I mean by that is. If there's something that you feel like we've skipped from Genesis to when we finish in 2 Samuel that you'd really like to hear more about, uh, talk about, that you want to see how that fits into the overarching story of redemptive history, here's what I want you to do. Text me a subject, a question. Uh, If you don't have my phone number, get my phone number. I'd love to interact with you. And and whatever we can do to cover that, we're going to actually spend... Probably week 10 and maybe even depending on how many questions we get and subjects we want to cover. A couple weeks covering some stuff that we miss when we go through a survey class. Okay, Does that sound good to you? Alright, so I don't want you to be disheartened. If we cover Joshua and Judges and you're like, where's Samson here? I thought we were going to talk about Delilah tonight. We're not. We're really going to go through an overview uh, of Joshua uh, and Judges. You know there's, there's what? 39 books of the Old Testament, right? I almost got that wrong. I was like, <laughs> I, should, I should know that. Um, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, right? So, unless you want to be here 39 weeks, which I'm, I'm boring, uh we to do it over here. All right, let's start. We start with Joshua. What we have there is. Okay, just making sure. Um, we have the <laughs> historical context. Uh, we know that this book spans 15 years, start at the beginning of the 14th century. We think it was written by Joshua um, himself. Uh, Israel begins. Where do we leave them off in Deuteronomy? Where are they?
1: Plains of Moab.
0: Plains of Moab. Are they in the promised land?
1: No.
0: No, no they're outside of the promised land, but the promised land has been re-promised, if you will, to the second generation. Joshua is going to be the one that leads them in because by the end, they're going to be led and entered into the occupy, and occupy the land. Uh, But not only do we need to remember the historical context, we also need to look at what other context? Redemptive historical context. There's one more, right? What's the third type of context we look at? Does anybody remember? Literary. Literary, right? Literary or textual. And why don't we look at those when we cover books at a time? Why aren't we looking at those? Because we're covering books at a time. Because we're covering <laughs> books at a time, right? You remember, the textual literary context is what becomes before a certain passage and what comes after a certain passage. This is how we protect from taking verses out of context. For instance, Philippians four 13 doesn't mean you can win a football game just if you have enough faith, because Philippians 4, before verse 13 and after verse 14, is about contentment. That's what Paul's talking about. We take verses out of context. When we don't address the textual or literary context. The reason why we're not addressing that tonight is because we're covering the entirety of the book. And so really the historical context also covers the textual literary context for us. Does that make sense? Yep. This means yes. You can, you can verbally say it. That's okay. You won't offend me if you say no. I can go slower. I know I'm really excited tonight. That's okay. Um, All right, so let's look at the redemptive historical context, which is the third type of context we need to evaluate. And let me tell you, friends, this is always important. When you go to a a church that preaches the Bible verse by verse, line by line, expositional preaching, which we have here at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. you need to make sure that the preacher is talking about the context, Um, The the number one indicator of whether or not a sermon is rooted in the scripture is whether or not the the preacher mentions what has gone on before and what has gone on after in any way. It protects you from, again, taking a verse, and, and each verse has one meaning, right? It protects you from finding what that one meaning is as you read the story in its place. This is why we do this. Redemptive historical context, we talk about that, remember what that is, it's the thread of the story of scripture, how does this take place, in God's uh, plan to redeem sinners for himself, we see that by the end of this book, you remember those promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis 12, Travis, the one you like to read all the time, in in chapter 12, verse 3, Uh, by the end of this book, they've been fulfilled. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, is the, the climax of redemptive history so far, right? Notice we haven't got to 2 Samuel 5, as we talked about this Sunday morning. But not a word of God's promise to Abraham has failed. The people are a great nation. They are his people. They are in possession of a
1: land,
0: land right? A promised land and They have, the Bible says, rest all around. Rest. It's a great moment in redemptive history, but much more still needs to be done to be accomplished in God's plan. Okay, now we've got the theme. The theme there of the book is this Yahweh is planting his people in his land so that they can have rest as he had promised in a relationship with him. The prominent themes in Joshua we will see are Yahweh's faithfulness in giving Israel the promised land. And what it means, you'll hear me say this over and over again tonight, that they will enjoy the rest in the land. You have your outline there with pivotal text. I gave you really kind of two different ways to look at this outline as you're reading through Joshua. Don't ignore those as you come to your scripture readings every week. Most of you have some of those in the Bible. We want to give you one from us Um, This helps you kind of outline, see where the thread of redemption is being covered in the text as we read them uh, verse by verse. And then we're going to switch switch over to theme text now. The theme text. Remember, the land of Canaan, uh, it represents what the Garden of Eden was and what the new heavens and new earth is going to be. Okay. Remember, Eden, it's a physical place. What happened in Eden? God had fellowship with his people, right? relationship with his people, and people had fellowship with one another in a perfect environment. The new heavens and and the new earth is that recreated universe that Jesus will bring with him when he Returns. returns. Good. Like Eden, God's people will once again have a perfect, loving fellowship with him And each other in a perfect ecosystem there. Even better, I don't know if you're looking forward to this, but the temptation to sin is going to be completely eradicated. There will never, ever, ever again be fear of exile away from God. We will never be separated from God again. So, What does that land, the the land promised in the new heavens and new earth, have to do with this land? Well, God intended that the promised land was going to be an imperfect, not perfect, but imperfect recreation of Eden and therefore a shadow or a picture, or another word we like to use, a type, very, I'm going to cry, the type of the new heavens and new earth at Christ's return. So God's people, even in the land, could have an imperfect relationship with him and each other there in the promised land. But it would be a sign and a symbol of greater things to come. All right. Let's dive into the text. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 1. You've already turned there, haven't you? I probably should have done that too. All right. So we're still thinking about the land. Joshua chapter 1, verses 13-13 through 15, says this, Remember uh, the word of the Lord, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you land. That's just verse 13 there. But in this verse, what's the concept, what's that word we see we're going to see quite a bit in here? Rest. Rest. Remember, oh yeah, you're so right, Bob. That's not what I'm looking for, but you're so right. There really is a a theme here. Remember, that's one of the, write that down. We'll talk about the seven stones and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper too. Uh, Rest, rest was the one I was looking for, but still, Bob, you're not wrong. Technically you're wrong, but you're not wrong. Uh, In these verses, notice the concept of rest. The concept of rest is always going to be connected to the land. Now I want you to turn, we're at the beginning of the book. That means I'm gonna have you turn all the way to the end. End. Well, sort of the end. Joshua 21. Actually, kind of the middle. Uh, Joshua 21. It's closer being verses 43 through 45. So at the beginning of the book, we saw. Remember the word of the Lord, uh, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, "The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land." Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. Someone want to read that for me?
1: Thank you, John. So the Lord gave Israel all the land He had sworn to give their forefathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side just as He had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled.
0: Good. Great. So again, remember... These verses, they are they're the high point of redemptive history so far. If we're reading from left to right that we've seen so far, in this uh, chapter twenty-one and the twenty-one chapters of Joshua, the people of Israel they've entered to take the land of Canaan, and so Yahweh's promises to Abraham they've been fulfilled. This is the furthest we've seen of God's plan of redemption developed so far. I'm going to keep reiterating this because it's this going to be a high point. It's going to lead to another high point. But note in these verses, particularly what brother John just read, how much is made of this idea of rest. Verse 43 says that Yahweh gave them the land. Verse 44 says he gave them rest. The land, rest. Again, synonymous, synonymous, synonymous. But what does it mean for Israel to have rest? And what does it mean in redemptive historical narrative of Yahweh's plan from the beginning of time? Well, the answer is actually found all the way back in Genesis chapter two, verses two through three. What do you think happens in Genesis two, verses two through
1: three?
0: Yeah, and on the seventh day, what did God do? God ended his work which he had done and Rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he created and made. I want you to be honest with me. When I say the word rest, what what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear the word rest? Sleep. Sleep. Relaxing. And every parent said amen, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. Anything else? Anybody else don't have time for it? What is this rest you speak of, right? This, yeah. Doing nothing. Or leprechaun. Leprechaun. Uh, leprechaun. Yes. Not having anybody looking over your shoulder
1: in cloudy fields
0: about Oh, yeah, okay. Maybe some isolation there, right? Okay, that's good. I like that brutally honest answer. Good thing Mary Beth's not in here. <laughs> um, all right, fantastic. Notice, notice he said that then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Anybody else? To refresh and reorganize. Your brain reorganizes when you sleep at night. Yeah. Like all the things you've done during the day. Right. That's when your brain files away. Good. I like that. Refresh, renew, reorganize. Anybody have anything else? Cease from work. Cease from work. That's good, Bob. All right. Let's think about this. Why did God rest? Okay, remember. Did God rest because he was just exhausted? No. No. rather, When we understand this idea of rest, we need to understand it redemptive historically. God is not the only one on the seventh day here enjoying rest in the garden. You know who else is? All of creation, actually. Yeah. All of creation is enjoying rest. What this rest means is that the work Adam and Eve were to do in the garden was not strenuous or difficult. Rather... Even their work was restful. Boy, doesn't that seem like a foreign concept, right? (laughs) The Garden of Eden was a place where everything was restful. Work, the environment, relationships, people's health, etc. All was peace and rest. That's far removed from our concept of rest, isn't it? Pretty much, yes. But look what happened... To this rest, once Adam and Eve sinned. And that's going to turn us to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I'll read it for you. Then to Adam he said, and he being God, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now the reality is, I think if you're like me and the first time you kind of hear the curse of Adam, you think, well, that's not really all that big of a deal because that's the only real concept I've ever had of work, right? That's why, (laughs) that's why work actually wasn't supposed to be those things. That is the very result of sin. So thus, with sin, that rest that all of creation enjoyed was lost. Verse 17 tells us the ground was cursed. It would no longer cooperate with Adam as he worked it. Instead, it would cause painful toil. Adam as it produces thorns and thistles. Adam must cultivate it through arduous labor. And then finally in verse 19, Adam's own body would even experience frustration, growing old and dying. So again, the rest from chapter 2 was indeed a rest and peace between man and his environment, his surroundings. So hear this. Part of God's redemption is to return man to that life of work that is not toilsome, but to have him again enjoy God's rest at the end of time. And there's an Old Testament foreshadowing of that return to rest which we are looking forward to. The rest we're reading about is it's right here in Joshua 21. In fact, would you go ahead and turn back to Joshua chapter 11 with me? And if somebody wants to read verse 23 while I take a big old gulp of water, that would be great. Thank you, Bob.
1: So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord and said to Moses, And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war.
0: Great. Again, here the emphasis is that the land receives the rest from War. Then we move on to Joshua 21, verse 44, and that says, The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he has sworn to their fathers, which tells us who the them is. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hands. So not only see that the land receives rest, but the people receive rest in Joshua 21, 44. And then... Go ahead, and if somebody gets to Joshua twenty-three verse one, that would be helpful. If you want to read that, twenty-three verse one. A long time later, after the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua was old and advanced in years. All right, so we've seen rest from in the land, rest from war, from wandering, from enemies. Rest again. Try to tell you, it's a theme here, isn't it? Very clearly in the scriptures. What we have then is that rest that God has in store for his people in the new heavens and new earth. It's prefigured in Israel having rest in the promised land. Important theme that that really is going to be throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This theology or understanding of rest is going to loom in the background of every single one of the interactions between Israel and those surrounding hostile nations. Get this. Any time that Israel is obedient to the Lord in the land, they're going to continue to experience what? Rest. 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 But whenever they're disobedient, the Lord is going to remove this rest by sending their enemies against them. Just as Adam and Eve lost their rest by sinning, so will Israel. We're actually going to see that in the book of Judges. So, of course, we have to ask, where is Jesus in all of this? Right? Right? Well, what do we learn about Christ here from the book of Joshua? And this is the part where really there's so much more here. But since we're on this theme of rest, a verse we know very well is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Let's read it together now. Or by reading it together, means you listen, I'll read. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, I wanted to involve you there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find yes. oh, come on with for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light that was beautiful guys Jesus' choice of words here that's not an accident right not a coincidence uh, he's looking forward to get this to eschatological right end times that's just a big word um, rest that all humans are really longing for right when you hear me talk about that rest in Genesis 2 boy that sounds good doesn't it uh, that's because it's been put in your heart that we long for that whether we realize it or not we all are longing for it and it can only be found in christ Amen. seven times in those three verses jesus refers to himself he's the one who leads people back to the way of life that they were originally intended to enjoy at rest with god at rest with others at rest with nature you can also read more on on rest in hebrews three or four we don't really have time of course do we completely enjoy that rest now? No. Not yet, but but get a glimpse of it. Total rest will be experienced only when Christ returns. But for now, boy, we enjoy a foretaste of that rest. We, as we already have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another by faith, united in Christ, not perfectly, but indeed in a very real way, as we wait for the full manifestation of our rest. So let's apply it real quick. The application here, of course, is to turn to Christ in obedience and faith and taste this invitation to rest that he offers. Everyone is longing for such a rest in their souls. You see that quote by C.S. Lewis? He had such a way with words. He said it this way, a car is made to run on petrol and I can't do the British accent. Sorry. And it would, I could, but it's not going to sound good. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other human history uh, in human history, is the long, terrible story of man through money, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. Augustine put it this way. He said, "Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Put your faith in Jesus and you will have rest." All right, let's go back to the Old Testament now. In order to achieve this rest, Israel's got to take first the land by those uh, dispossessing, by dispossessing those who already inhabited it. That is much of what the first 21 chapters of Joshua are all about. It is a book of conquering. Um, As you study them on your own or with your family or even, I think Sunday schools went through it not too long ago, right, Bob? Uh, You keep this theme of God's people in God's land enjoying God's rest in mind. That's the driving motif behind what's going on. But also notice that Joshua leads the people of God into this land and achieves this rest for them. In this way, Joshua serves as a
1: type
0: of who? Christ. Absolutely. He's a foreshadowing of the greater leader. They actually have the same name in the Hebrew. Uh, Christ who will take his people into a greater land to enjoy a greater rest. Um, okay. Guys, we just covered a book. How much time we got left? That's just that's just wonderful. right? We have time for a whole other book. So now just turn a little bit to the right. We're going to go to Judges. Judges... It picks up right where Joshua left off. Israel, they've taken the land. Again, climax of redemptive history so far. But now the question becomes, are they going to be able to keep that land? The events told in Judges, they take place. You know, we just look at 15 years in Joshua and a whole lot of chapters. The events of Judges take place roughly over 350 years. From the time Joshua died until the time of Israel's first King, or the, the story introducing Israel's first king. So we're talking somewhere around 1390 BC to 1050 BC or so. We don't know who wrote it, but we do believe it was written shortly after the last events were recorded, somewhere in the mid to late 11th century BC. In the course of redemptive history, uh, Judges, that was historical context by the way, Judges takes up the place between the taking of the land. And that next great step forward in God's plan of redemption, the crowning of a king. The book shouts of the need for a faithful, covenant-keeping king to rule over the people of God and lead them in the paths of righteousness. Of course, we know from our study in Second Samuel that they really had a king all along, didn't they? And yet, even now, we're beginning to see them fail to see that and to reject that king. Uh, but God's going to be faithful to them in the midst of that. But Judges also really encapsulates a very important theme in the Bible. It begins a theme of exile and return. Have you ever heard that theme before? Oh yeah. Exile and return. Boy, when you get to the prophets, it's all about exile and return particularly. And, and even in First and 2 Kings as well. Ezra and Nehemiah, of course. When Israel is unfaithful, they're going to lose control of the land. They're going to serve their enemies. Losing again that rest. But Yahweh is compassionate and he sends them saviors or otherwise known as judges. 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 Got it. To deliver them from their oppressors and restore them to rest in the land. It's a theme that of course goes all the way back to the first exile of the Garden of Eden and continues throughout the rest of the Bible. I feel like we preached on that not too long ago, didn't we? All right. A theme of judges might be this. The people of God learn that they need a righteous, covenant-keeping king if they are to be a faithful people. Yet, regardless of their failings, praise the Lord, Yahweh is still faithful, sending many saviors to deliver them from their enemies. And we really, I love how we're going to capture this, because yes, there's a lot of stories in Judges we know, but they all follow this this really clear same pattern. And we're going to see this, this kind of pattern and cycle of, Israel forgetting Yahweh, serving other gods, bringing upon themselves Yahweh's righteous anger and wrath. Then, after suffering the consequences for that, finally crying out to Yahweh, whereupon Yahweh has pity on them, delivers them through those saviors, otherwise known or called judges. And then, the cycle starts all over again. Israel forgets their God. But remember, before you get too hard on Israel, That's us. (laughs) Honestly, it is. Isn't it hard sometimes to fight against self-righteousness when we're reading the Old Testament? Mm. You know that's the enemy in your own heart, right? (laughs) When you read the Old Testament with humility, you understand, boy, I deserve just what they deserve. And yet, God is faithful despite his people's unfaithfulness. We all say amen to that. All right, so uh, we'll see. All in all, what Israel needs is a godly king to direct and lead them. Really, they need the one right in front of him, uh, but they do. It's, it's pointing forward that picture, and All this is foreshadowing types. We see the foreshadowing of a need for a savior and deliverer here, and we're going to point forward to the need for a king. And I love this in the Old Testament. Jesus is fulfilling all of this, isn't he? Everything we've seen from Genesis to Judges that that, that is, is foreshadowed. Jesus is, and so read that in. Mind. Our outline with the text is there, very simple there, and that really, as we look at our theme text, then the easiest way to understand Judges is by the way it's laid out. Just look at that outline. You'll see that after some words of transition, after Joshua dies in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 23, it just paints a very clear picture of what life was like in Israel during the time of the Judges. And really, the bulk of the book tells seven stories that are going to follow that exact. Paradigm given in chapter 2. Those famous stories of Ehud, Jephthah, and Samson, so forth, Gideon, right, Deborah, we know most of those. Finally, the book ends with two stories that are meant to leave us, the readers, thinking, boy, these people really need a covenant king to lead them, to shepherd them. They, they really do. They, they need a, a leader. That's really the agenda of the entire book. Israel needs a king. Chapter 2 verses 10 through 23, let's look again at that that, that sort of paradigm that that kind of summary of chapter 2 by understanding this paradigm those famous stories of Deborah, Gideon Samson, so on, the ones we mentioned, they're going to make more sense. We'll see that follow through in each and every one of those stories. So turn to Judges chapter 2 let me show you how this paradigm is explained in terms of that cycle we already mentioned that Israel falls into again and again and again in the book of Judges Seven parts as we've said I want you to see it clearly. Number one, what do we say? Israel does what with Yahweh? They forget forget Yahweh. Chapter 2 of Judges, verse 10. Can someone read Judges 2.10 for me? And
1: all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord for the work that he had done for Israel.
0: Ooh, What does that remind you of? Something we studied last week. Deuteronomy chapter what? Anybody remember? Six. Right? Fathers, what were they to do? Teach, to Teach their children. Fine. Right. I know we looked at the Shema, but remember that. What were they supposed to do with that Shema? Put it on their foreheads if they had to. Cover their house with it. Why? So that they would not. And think about that in the context, right? Remember who Moses is talking to? He's talking to the younger generation because of the unfaithfulness of the older generation. He's re-giving the law and saying, "Guys, don't make the mistakes of your fathers here." And then what happens? God gives them the land, and in Judges two, we find we got a whole generation of people that don't know the Lord. They forgot. Guys, listen. I'm just going to apply this real quick because I've got so much time. Um, I don't really, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, there is there is a temptation, a real temptation. Uh, for us to just find our comfort zones in our ages and those who have the same life experiences as we do. And, 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 and I think we don't always are motivated by this, but we like to criticize and comment on younger generations or older generations or generations different than us. And that's never what we've been called to do.
1: It's not. We've
0: been called to invest in the younger generation. What? You can, you can complain all you want. What have you done? That's the reality, right? And listen, it goes both ways. We usually say that, well, that's, you know, for us younger, that's the older, but it does. Uh, you are supposed to, as a younger individual, be looking at learning, seeking to learn from the wisdom of those who are older than you. And as an older individual, an older generation, you're to be seeking how you can invest the truth of the gospel into the younger generation. Can I tell you, I'm really thankful for that at Great Gables. I'm thankful that I, I look and I see different ages and life experiences in this church, and I see the relationships that are formed there, but let's not get complacent, right? Think about but This is remember the whole purpose of this. Think about how we can invest in the younger generation, the older generation so that we don't do this right here. This is the start. Israel forgets their Lord. because They're not faithful to, to to remember, Bob, uh, what the Lord has done. Okay, Israel forgets Yahweh. Then number two, Israel serves other gods. We find that Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they, they provoked the Lord to anger. Okay, so we see Israel uh, Israel forgets Yahweh, and in that forgetfulness of Yahweh, they go on to serve other gods. Yahweh then grows angry. We've kind of already read that at the end of chapter 12. They've provoked the Lord to anger and rightful anger, right? And then number four, Yahweh responds with wrath through foreign invaders. Verses 14 and 15 says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. You ever hear that phrase, right? Well, they were hot. Can you imagine the God who created the stars of the sky by speaking them into existence being hot against Israel? That's what we see here. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So what did they lose in that verse? What have they lost now? God's favor and in Joshua Does that sound like rest to you? Doesn't sound like rest to me Uh, That that they lost that rest Instead of victory over their enemies And the enjoyment of peace and rest They serve their enemies and they fear them These invading armies create many exiles of sorts And so we see Israel cries out And then Yahweh has pity on his people Look at verses 16 uh, through 18. Someone can read that for me, if you can, of chapter 2. Two, sixteen through
1: 18. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel... He was with that judge and rescued people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering.
0: How quick are we to be like, Lord, don't do that? Right? They deserve it. Especially when we know the rest of the story, it's going to happen over and over again. Lord, what are you doing? Right? You're enabling this, but listen to the Lord's faithfulness. These are His. This is showing his long suffering with you. And friends, that should be encouraging to you. Really should, right? That he has pity on his people. And that doesn't stop right there. But Yahweh delivers his people through a judge. Israel, again, did nothing to deserve this deliverance. And they were granted it. You know what that's called? Grace. That's right. Yahweh is simply gracious. And then... As we see, Israel forgets Yahweh again and acts even more corruptly than before, and the cycle starts all over again. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by allowing, um, I'm sorry, by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. So that's chapter two. That's the pattern. Really, chapter three to sixteen, as I said. You can look at that pattern and it follows the seven stories we see about the Judges. They emphasize Israel's stubbornness and sin and Yahweh's patience and Yahweh's great and marvelous grace. And again, interesting note, um, we we know a lot of these Judges because they're not famous as much as they are infamous, right? Um, These Judges are not the most or best ethical role models, are they? Right? If you've ever read the book of Judges... Many of them are quite immoral. That's important because they couldn't be perfect. Think of David, right? If they were perfect, they might be tempted to think this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the deliverer, but they're all meant to point forward to that. Salvation is again purely rooted in God's grace. And then, chapter 17 through 21 makes the final commentary on this. You turn all the way over to Judges 17 and verse 6. Stop me if this sounds familiar. In those days, there was no king, king in Israel, and everyone—I know you're like that's 21:25. You're right; it's in 17:6 as well. In fact, 21:25 says, "Get this: In those days, <laughs> there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right in his own eyes." It's as though the author is saying this sort of stuff that we've seen in the Book of Judges—the the sins of all the people, the invasions of the foreign armies, the loss of rest it would not have happened if they had but trusted in their covenant faithful king the lord but even so it's pointing forward to their need even for a covenantly faithful king to be shadowed and pictured for them so they would know what to look like when they look for when they look for a king everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is not good not at all sounds like America today tell that to your postmodern friends right <laughs> that is not Good. Anytime you hear about postmodernism and creating your own truth and following your own path, all this sort of stuff. Woo. I had a, a, one of my students in, in youth ministry had a T-shirt she'd wear to Wednesday nights, have the audacity and the gall to wear that said "Follow your heart." And I said Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is desperately wicked; who can trust it? Right? You can't know. Don't follow your own heart. That's the Book of Judges: No, do what's right in your own eyes. That is always going to lead to bad, awful. Things as we see in this book, they need a king who will shepherd them and shepherd the people of God well. So we see that leaders, judges, they serve as types of Christ. Only he finally delivers his people from all their woes. And then like Matthew 11, only Christ brings this lasting rest. Further, only Christ truly solves problems that these judges could only temporarily address. Only Christ fully obeyed God's law. Only Christ is the perfect king over his people. Only Christ shepherds his people in untainted righteousness. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll talk more about Christ as our great king and shepherd in the next lesson where we're going to attempt to cover three books. Uh, But for now, we leave off with the book of Judges, calling, praying, and hoping for this king. In conclusion, the book of Judges tells of the struggles with sin that the people of God had in the land And it really kind of serves as a prayer of sorts, asking God to, even despite their unfaithfulness, advance his plan even still. For the people, they need a king. And all of this should be understood as being pointing forward to King Jesus. We did it, everyone. We covered two books in a true survey class tonight. Anybody have any questions, thoughts, or anything whatsoever? Are you saving them for the text messages you might send me this week of things that you want to cover? You can. Feel free for that. I would encourage that. Remember, let's put it together. And we should be working on a covenant plan of redemption, a redemptive historical understanding of the the text so far. How do we see God's plan to save sinners as it unfolds from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? We may even spend a class just looking at that uh, and, and, and seeing what do you got uh, I'm gonna, I shouldn't say that. That's They're not going to come next week, are they? Okay, no. That's uh, the that's, that's week 10. You're right. That's we look at 10. the covenants again. All right. Uh, and if there's no questions, then uh, Justin, you want to pray for us, my
1: friend? Absolutely. Let's All pray. Right. Father, we thank you so much for these books. And Lord, how you tell us in the New Testament that these things were written for our, our example. They're written for our edification. or that we would see ourselves in our desperate need of Christ. Or we we ask that you would help us again as we, we ask each week. Lord, help us to understand, to think about these things in their context and not try to make them say things that you never intended them to say. Lord, not only do we, would you help us to understand, Lord, help us to apply. Lord, again, help us to see that we're not the hero in the story, but that we are the ones that are in desperate need of saving. Uh, we are all too prone to forget the Lord. And to serve other gods, to serve anything other than the Creator. And so, Father, would you, and your, your, thank you that in your pity of us, that in, your, in your grace, that you, that you remind us of what's good, right, and true from the Word. Help us not only to understand, but to apply these things to our lives, that we would be people uh, through whom the, the grace and all the perfections of God are displayed. Uh, Lord, not only help us to understand, not only to apply, but Lord, help us to teach. Lord, we are, we are reminded yet again that we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for the good of the kingdom and for the advancement of the, the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, starting right here in Callahan. So Lord, help us uh, open our eyes to opportunities all around us to share the gospel Uh, and and to make disciples, Lord, that you would be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Did you have fun tonight? Amen. Good. God bless you. Don't forget about Sunday, Family Sunday, and and Big Church, and then Trunk or Treat out here. It's going to be wonderful. God bless you guys. You are dismissed. If you have any conversations you want to have?